Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. This week we're bringing you special episodes on the forgotten aspects of the Holocaust, and this is to commemorate International Holocaust Memorial Day. 550,000 Hungarian Jews were killed during the Holocaust, in Nazi-run death camps or in forced labour battalions, or some by the Nazis' Hungarian allies, the Hungarian fascists. But some Jews in the capital, Budapest, survived the war, albeit after being moved into the Budapest ghetto. To tell us more about life in the ghetto, we're joined by Dr Agnes Grunwald Spear, MBE. Not only is Agnes one of the UK's leading historians on the Holocaust, having authored Who Betrayed the Jews, Women's Experiences in the Holocaust, and The Other Schindlers, but as a small baby, Agnes and her mother were sent to the Budapest ghetto, whilst her father was rounded up by the Hungarian fascists and made to conduct forced labour. Agnes is one of the youngest survivors of the Holocaust. She brings us her personal account of this tragic history. Agnes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, James. Not a problem at all. Now, when historians talk about the horror of the Holocaust, they often focus on the Warsaw Ghetto and Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen and the harrowing stories of individual hardship. But as a result, places like the Budapest Ghetto and the Holocaust in Hungary are often overlooked. But this is your history because as a baby, you were taken to the Budapest Ghetto. Is that right? That's correct. I was born in July 1944 in Budapest to Hungarian Jewish parents. And in November 44, my mother and I were sent to the ghetto, which only really lasted for three months. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the ghetto and what life was like for the people who were taken there. Well, obviously, I don't have any memories of the ghetto itself because I was only a few months old. But from what my mother told me, it was not a good place to be. I mean, you probably know that Budapest has terribly cold winters and there was 
virtually no fuel. I think people just burnt bits of furniture and so on. And there was very little food. I met an elderly man who was there and he spoke about Jewish organizations sort of bringing in a lot of dried pulses and so on by way of food. But my mother managed to breastfeed me even though she had very little to eat. And also the Arrow Cross, which were the Hungarian fascists, used to take pot shots at the Jews in the ghetto. So it was a very dangerous place to be. My mother's cousin, who was fighting with Tito, and he was there at the liberation of Budapest, and he said he found my mother when the ghetto was liberated, sitting on some steps, holding me, surrounded by dead bodies. So it was not a place for the faint-hearted. So how was this allowed to unfold in Budapest, in Hungary? Because the city was the centre of Jewish life prior to the war, with 200,000 Jewish people living there. What was the political climate like in Hungary that allowed these policies to take hold and sweep the nation? Well, Hungary had an anti-Semitic past. I mean, as early as 1920, they introduced the numerous clauses, which was the limitation of the number of Jewish students who could go to the universities in Hungary. And in the 30s, they introduced various Jewish laws which limited the life of Jews. And Hannah Senesch, the famous woman who went back to Hungary to try and save people, she wrote in her diary about the various Jewish laws and the impact of them. And so the result was that in 1943, for instance, my father was rounded up for forced labour by the Hungarian fascists. Hungary wasn't occupied by the Germans until March 1944, which is very late compared with the rest of Europe. So it's terribly important when I talk to schools and so on, I always stress that he was rounded up by the Hungarian fascists, not by the Germans. And they were incredibly badly treated by their fellow countrymen. And my father actually survived, but he was very bitter from his experiences. He wouldn't have any more children After the war, when my parents were settled in England, my mother would have liked more children, but he said it wasn't a world to bring children into. And he committed suicide when I was 10. That's one example. And I can remember as a teenager, when I began to understand a little of what had happened, I asked my mother why she didn't leave. And she said, well, she didn't want to leave Hungary without her family. And her father wouldn't leave. Her father said... Why should I leave my native land? And he was on a bus and he was taken off, I think it was by the Germans, because this was round about the time I was born. They stopped the bus and they got on the bus and said, are there any Jews on the bus? And you couldn't deny you were a Jew unless you had false documents. And he was taken off the bus and never seen again. And the bus driver must have been a decent man because he recognised him. And when he'd finished his shift, he went round to the family and told them what he'd seen. But it wasn't till after the war that they discovered that he'd been taken to Auschwitz. And he was probably gassed on arrival because he wasn't a very healthy man. He wouldn't have been able to work. 
and I've not been able to find out what happened to him because you know he wouldn't have been given a number or anything if he was gassed on arrival. Curiously, in the recent research I've done, I've discovered he was with his brother on the bus and they were taken together. And bizarrely, I've sort of felt more comfortable in a way that at least he wasn't on his own. He had his brother with him. I mean, it probably sounds a bit daft, but all these years I've thought about him being on his own. Hopefully one day I will find out what happened to him, but it's quite difficult no, I can imagine. I mean, this was all at the hands of the Hungarian fascists. No, I believe. I don't know, because I'm only going on what's been told in the family. Because it was round about when I was born, when the Germans were in Hungary, I've assumed that it was actually the Germans. Because I don't know that the Hungarians would have had the ability to send him to Auschwitz, but who knows? But they did have the ability to send your father off to a work camp. Do you know where he was sent to? Well, I believe it was somewhere like the Polish-Russian border because I just found a document that my mother half completed to try and get some compensation, but she never sent it off. I found it after she died and she just wrote mine clearing. That was what he was doing. Well, somebody else told me, a Hungarian chap whose family story is very similar. And he said, well, basically, they just sent them to walk across the fields. And obviously, if they came across the mine, it blew them up. But somehow, and bearing in mind that apart from the man I married, he was the most impractical man I knew. The fact that he managed to survive that (laughs) is quite remarkable. Yeah, but it sounds like it shaped his view of life after the war. Yes, indeed. I think it was partly because the Jewish forced labourers were looked after by the Hungarian soldiers. So they were their fellow countrymen. And they treated them so abysmally. Now, let's talk a little bit about your mother, Leona, because she must have gone through tremendous hardship living in the Budapest ghetto with a young baby. How did she manage to survive? What was life like for her? Well, I think it was extremely difficult because, as I said to you, there was very little food. She was very strong. She was strong physically and she was strong mentally. And she was able to keep producing milk for me because obviously otherwise I would have died. And she somehow kept me warm. And I think it must have been the most terrible struggle. And it was thinking about her because, you see, bizarrely, my father was allowed home on leave. He went off to the forced labour sometime in '43. I haven't got a specific date. And he was allowed home on leave, which apparently was when I was conceived. And so she was in Budapest when it was occupied, pregnant, on her own. And then she had to leave her flat and go to an area that was designated for Jewish women. It wasn't yet the ghetto, but you didn't have much choice. And so she went off to a clinic to have me when I was on the way because she couldn't go to the maternity hospital because she was Jewish. And then she went back there and then she was told to report one day and she tried to leave me with my grandmother But my grandmother said, well, I can't look after the baby because I can't feed her. And so in the end, she took me the next morning. And all she said was that the man in charge sent back the women with children. Otherwise, who knows where we would have ended up. It's quite horrific. I probably wouldn't be here talking to you now. And then in November, she was sent to the ghetto. So I can't really tell you much more about the ghetto. But when I've done my research for my next book, I will be able to tell you more. Absolutely, yes, and we'll definitely get you back on then to talk more about it. Hold up. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Perhaps you could just give us an insight into when they were liberated and who they were liberated by. Well, they were liberated by the Russians. People knew the Russians were coming and there was a threat to liquidate the ghetto in the December. But the Russians arrived and my mother was liberated on the 18th of January with me. And I've been trying to find out even what happened. Did they just open the gates and say, right, off you go or what? And my mother hadn't been in her flat. They didn't own their flat. They rented it. But she had to leave in early June 44. So whether somebody else had been living in her flat, I don't know. But she went back to her flat. And the Russians were marauding round Budapest. And the block was a typical continental square block with a courtyard and the flats all round. And she was in her flat with me and she could hear a lot of noise and screaming and she could see dinner services and linen and stuff being chucked out of windows. And she could hear the screams of women being raped. And suddenly, I don't know whether they knocked on the door or whether they kicked the door in, but she had three or four Russian soldiers in her flat and she spoke no Russian and they spoke no Hungarian. But they indicated that they were hungry and she equally indicated that she hadn't got any food. So they went off and apparently they came back with this frozen animal, which she later told me she thought was probably a dog. And somehow they cut it up and somehow my mother cooked parts of it. What? I don't know. The fact of the matter is, people may squirm at the thought, but when you're hungry and there's bugger all to eat, you don't get too particular. And my mother actually was a very good cook, but she didn't have the opportunity to show it off then. Anyhow, she cooked this thing, and they all sat on the floor and ate it. And she was obviously worried that they were going to hurt me, and I suppose she didn't fancy being raped either. But she was smaller than me, but she had great authority. 
Auntie, and I think also she had the sense not to appear frightened. So they ate their food, and one of them looked at me wherever I was lying, and he sort of hit his chest and indicated he'd got three children. And they just lay down on the floor and went to sleep. And the next morning they pushed off, and she just had this relatively tranquil time when there was absolute mayhem going on all around her. I think Anthony Bivois has written a book about what happened in Berlin with the Russians. I don't think much has been written about Hungary. But anyhow, that was my mum and the Russian soldiers. Fascinating to hear because we've had guests on the show previously have spoken about the Soviet liberation of places like Bornholm in Denmark and how it was a relatively peaceful liberation and the locals were treated well. But then, of course, we've also had guests on this show who have spoken about how the Soviet soldiers treated people in the Baltics in the most disgusting and despicable manner. So this doesn't sound to me like it's much of a liberation here. It's one occupation to the other. And although your mother appears to have somehow stumbled across some soldiers who were kind at least but how did she escape this second round of well occupation well yes that's it i mean the russians came and in the words of 1066 they liberated budapest which was a good thing but then they didn't want to go home which was a bad thing and my mother had made up her mind that if she survived the holocaust she would leave hungary because of the anti-semitism and that was why she called me agnes because although it's a popular hungarian name my mother was very well read and she knew it was an international name and so when my father came back in march 1945 she said that she wanted to leave. She was the eldest of four girls and the next sister, Clara, had come to England before the war with her boyfriend and so she was able to sign the papers for us. But that was something else that I've researched during the lock-in and my mother said that we left Budapest on an illegal train. Again, very limited information. And it was early 46 or possibly late 45. I've actually got a diphtheria inoculation certificate around about then, which was in Budapest. And my father heard about this train and bribed the appropriate people. And so we left they didn't tell anyone they were going. And I'm chasing a book that Yehuda Bauer wrote about it because there was an organisation called Bricha, which helped Jews who'd survived the Holocaust, mainly go to Palestine, but also to other places. And I think this train that we went on, which was from Budapest to Vienna, was organised by them. And then we were in Vienna for a year in displaced persons camp. And I still got the United Nations certificates from that and Clara in London did the stuff and signed the documents to act as a guarantor but it took a long time and we eventually arrived in England in May 1947. Do you know much about how your father was liberated and managed to find his way back to your mother Leona? I've no idea absolutely no idea. Being sent up again to the border with Poland and having the Red Army sweep through again, it appears like your parents, although of course through the worst times, were very fortunate to find each other again at the end of the war. Well, yes, and that's why I'm so curious about what happened to the flat. Was it empty? Was it looted? My mother never spoke about that, but she went back and she obviously had access to it, whether she'd still got the keys with her or what, you know, there's just bizarre details. But he must have just turned up one day. I mean, perhaps there was transport. He must have been in a very weak state and he wouldn't let her cook anything with onions. I don't know whether onions was all they had. Cooking 
Now, onions is actually quite difficult, really, if you're making stews and stuff. Anyhow, but, you know, I was 10 when he died. The only thing that I remember him telling me was I grew up in a place called Sutton in Surrey and there was a nice little park in the centre of Sutton. And I remember walking through the park one day with him and there was a mulberry tree. And he said to me, this tree saved my life. And I looked at him and I looked at the tree and I knew that it'd come from Hungary. I was trying to work out how this particular tree had saved his life, but I must have asked him because he explained that when they were walking along the roadside, that must have been some sort of forced march, people were dying of dysentery and he picked the mulberries off the trees as they were walking along and ate them and he didn't die of dysentery. So he said the mulberries saved his life. And that's really all I remember him telling me, but of course I was very young. And also in those days he died in 1955 people didn't talk to children the way you do nowadays and I didn't ask my mother much because I knew she used to get upset and then she'd have bad dreams and they were just the two of us I mean obviously now I regret it but I'll have a good fertile round see what I can find and I suppose this leads me on to my next question because you were able to come to the UK and start your life you've incredibly young child at this point When did you first start looking into your family history? Yes, it's quite curious, really, because obviously I knew about the Holocaust, although it wasn't called that in those days. And I can remember my parents talking about the Germans. And I didn't really know what the Germans were as a young child. And I can remember (laughs) there was no extended family. We lived with Auntie Claire and her husband in Southgate for a few months, but my father and her husband didn't get on. So in the end, we moved to South London where my father got a job. And I can remember there's a more or less pinning a babysitter up against the wall and saying, who are these Germans my parents keep going on about? And this poor woman, my father was still alive before 1955. I can still remember the look on her face as she realised she was on very dodgy territory. But, you know, I've got no one to ask. And it was quite strange. So most of my life, I just ignored the Holocaust. If it came on the television, I switched it off. I didn't read about it. The first time I can remember reading about it was at the time of the Eichmann trial. Because, of course, that was very significant because of Hungary. That was 61, I think. So I was 18. And I can remember coming back from school each day and reading the transcript in the paper. But I have absolutely no recollection of talking to my mother about it. And I don't remember it being discussed at school. And again, then I didn't read anything about it. And I was married for 10 years before I had any children. So when I was in my 50s, I had three teenage sons who, to all intents and purposes, seemed like ordinary Englishmen. But they weren't because of my background. And I thought, what if they start asking me about it? I don't know anything other than what my mother's told me. And I was wondering what to do. And at that time, I was living in Sheffield. And someone told me that they were going to do a master's in Holocaust studies at Sheffield University. So I signed up for that. And it was a part-time two-year course. I did it from 96 to 98. And that led to this whole new career 
I always knew I'd enjoyed doing research because I'd always been interested in history. I did history at A-level and I'd started a local history society when we lived in Worcestershire. But I had to write a dissertation and I wrote about someone called Varian Fry. It's quite interesting, actually, because they've been banging on about David Miliband and the charity that he runs. Well, Varian Fry was sent, it was called the Emergency Rescue Committee, and it was set up to rescue Jews who were stuck in the south of France after the fall of France. And Varian Fry, who'd been a journalist in Germany and he'd seen Jews attacked in the 30s, went out with all these visas that Eleanor Roosevelt had persuaded her husband to sign. And $3,000, and I can never remember whether it was the $3,000 or the 200 visas that were strapped to his leg. Anyhow, he went out to rescue these Jews mostly intellectuals, people like Chagall and so on. And he was meant to go for a month and he stayed for 13 months. It's a very interesting story. Anyhow, that led me to be interested in Holocaust rescues. So that was how I came to write my first book, The Other Schindlers. And as they say, the rest is history. And so I found in my 60s, I had this whole new career. <laughs> wow, and we're so glad that you did. Where can people read more about your family history and, of course, your other books as well? Well, my other books are available from all good booksellers all over the world. Absolutely. And Amazon. And my family history, there's a very small chapter, I think I called it an afterthought, in the women's book about my family story, mainly my mother's, because it was my mother's experience which led me to want to write about women's experiences because obviously you know being pregnant and having to look after me and so on was very different to a man's experience and I was going to write a family memoir when the publishers asked me to write something else and they weren't at all interested in the family memoir but I've made up my mind that the family memoir is the thing I'm going to write next before I go completely gaga and can't remember anything so hopefully I'm aiming to have it out by late 20. 21. It's been difficult this year because with all the libraries and everything being shut. But I think it's important. And if I don't do it, there isn't anyone else in the family who will. And also, I've now got three grown-up sons, two of whom have got four children between them. And they're very keen for me to do it. And I think it's important. Well, and so are we. And I can't wait to read that book. And in the meantime, our listeners can read Women's Experiences in the Holocaust, Who Betrayed the Jews, and The Other Schindlers. Agnes, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.